You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Beside me is uh, TJ. What are you doing, TJ? I was fixing my thing. Fixing? I'm fixing. Hold on. Sorry. My bad. Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to make... (laughs) I'm clearly no sound engineer over here. All right. Okay. Are you good? I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. I'm going to have to um, apologize to our audience some new neighbors moved in and they've only got one level on their voice which is scream and so that's lovely so yesterday for like six hours this guy had a phone call and i know all about his life now and so if you hear him i'm sorry we record this in maybe maybe that's new audience (laughs) (laughs) They'll just be tuning in (laughs) to listen in the background about this new neighbor's life. Good lord. I mean, was it interesting at least? No, it wasn't. (laughs) Oh, that's too bad. And I think he's the same guy who might have the really sad dog. Because now we just have a dog that howls like... Oh. But it's like mournful. It's so sad. Poor baby. (laughs) So anyway, what uh, what do you got for us this week? So this week... I am going to discuss the life of James Ingram. Um, Yacht Rock at its finest. Oh, yeah. So this week we're discussing James Ingram, Mm -hmm. who just passed away at the end of January. So we wanted to kind of jump in and pay our respects in an an earlier episode. And this is going to happen if someone... In our musical community passes away, we might preempt an episode so that we can take an episode and devote it to them. It might be like this, which is, you know, fully almost, researched, fully, yeah. full episode. It's or, almost a month out from when yeah. he passed when we're recording this now. It's one of those things where we really just wanted to set aside an episode. And in two weeks, we also are going to honor Peter Tork from the yes. Monkees because he passed away as well. And so uh, Tracy's working on that one, not to have any spoiler alerts. So if you're not familiar with James Ingram, he was an R&B singer, songwriter, and producer that had his kind of heyday through the 80s and 90s. But there was a lot more to him than that, and he had a really great career. Uh, So we're going to dive in on him. He was born in Akron, Ohio on February 16th, 1952 to Henry Ingram Sr. and Alistine, his mother. Was she 16 or a seamstress? (laughs) So Ingram and his family were incredibly private, so there's not a lot of information there. Interesting. But one thing that gets brought up a lot because it's very, I think it's very indicative and and relevant to kind of how he lived his life and the kind of person that he was. His dad was a church deacon. So you'll kind of see this throughout his career. He's actually more of a humble guy. He's a very he's a family guy. So if you know his music and know his his work, you may be able to see how he actually takes not only his upbringing, but then in his own life, 
he, you know, he marries his childhood sweetheart and they have a, a, a large family with six kids. And so he's always trying to be, he gravitates towards material that is more chivalrous and mild mannered, which I'll get into a little bit more kind of getting off topic already. So essentially he's very, he's very humble guy. He grows up with the church. So he's very, you know, rooted in that he has five brothers and sisters. Like there's six kids in his family. So that already is kind of setting up because as I mentioned, he, he married his childhood sweetheart. They had a family of six kids and, you know, so that's just kind of ingrained in him and that's really strong rooted. And he's a very humble guy. Did you say rooted? Yeah. Like roots, like tree roots. Rooted into the ground. So James is really interested in music from an early age. You know, being involved with the church. His brother is a skilled keyboardist and plays with the with the church band and he's and James sings in the church choir and you know, so seeing his brother play the keyboards, he ends up, you know, kind of wanting to follow suit. And he starts teaching himself. He's inspired by the jazz organist Jimmy Smith. So he kind of teaches himself to learn to play piano after that. And that's kind of like a through line that we actually have with this podcast because Left Eye taught herself how to play mm-hmm. the piano at age five. And Stevie was learning from his brother. Yeah, like they those two, he would watch his brother and kind well, of and, Jay. and then Jay took mm-hmm. his brother's saxophone, took and, his brother's and, saxophone, and taught himself. Like he, I mean, he started taking lessons and stuff, but he got started with his brother's saxophone. Like so, you know, it gets passed around. James self-taught on the piano. Being a church family, his family can't afford an organ or a piano of their own. So at the age of 14, Ingram joins a local nightclub band playing instrumental jazz and pop covers to further his training because you can only get so far when you only have access to an instrument for a few hours a day or whatever. So he joins this local band in Akron. At 14, which is really kind of cool. He was also a really promising athlete in school and was actually offered a track scholarship, but he opted to stay on his music path. And so in 1970, when he's 18, Ingram joins the Akron band Revelation Funk. So he's still playing with them and, you know, getting better and better and flushing out all these funk and R&B roots. And with this band... In 1973, so he's 21 now, uh, Revelation Funk, the band, moves to L.A. to try to branch out, gain some popularity, and hit the big time. (laughs) So they record a single. So, like, not much happened between kind of 14 and 21, so I'm guessing at this time he's just kind of like... He's just been playing. He's just playing been playing with different bands. Playing and working on his craft and yeah. stuff like that. Okay. He's just been playing, work, working with different bands, being James, you know. So when they so when Revelation Funk moves out to LA, they're playing they're doing the gig scene out here. They record a single called Time is on Our Side, which is featured in the film Dolomite. Dolomite? Never heard of it. I'm not either. Sorry. Aside from this research. <laughs> But anyways, it's featured in the film and it gains some good popularity, but the band can't sustain that popularity and they don't really get any backup and they can't sustain themselves out here in L.A. 
So the band moves back to Ohio. So James stays in L.A. and he's running around pounding the pavement and all that stuff. But eventually ends up playing keys and performing background vocals for Ray Charles, which is kind of awesome. That's crazy because didn't Ray play his own keyboard? Maybe originally, but maybe as time went on. Because, I mean, now we're in 70s. We're in the early to mid-70s now. So maybe by then, or maybe it was a supplementary thing. Maybe. Or, like, for session work or something? Maybe. Perhaps. So, I mean, how do you not really improve your craft working with Ray Charles if you're a keyboardist and a songwriter and all that? Like, that's amazing. His own career then starts taking off in the mid-70s when he starts working as Leon Haywood's musical director. So that's kind of another big step for Ingram. And then in 1975 is when he marries... His child, sweetheart, Deborah Robinson, a.k.a. Debbie. But then, as I mentioned previously, then they go on to have six children. And that's all there is to say about that. Uh, But they were still but they were still married when he passed away. So they were married 43 years. At the time of his death, they had been married 43 years. So he had six siblings growing up and he also had six kids. Well, he. Uh, his family was six kids His mm-hmm. when he was a kid, so he had five siblings. Mm-hmm. And then he had six children of his own with Deborah. Okay. So yeah. it was six and six, so. Yeah. <laughs> Very reflective. <clears throat> so going back to the story. Um, so in the late 70s, now remember he's, when he marries Deborah, he is Leon Haywood's musical director. So in the late 70s. Now who is Leon Haywood? And this isn't a name that's familiar to me. Sorry. So Leon Haywood is actually a funk and soul singer, songwriter, record producer. Best known for his 1975 hit, I Want to Do Something Freaky to You. Um, What's actually really kind of interesting about Leon Haywood being now in James Ingram's story is that he also worked with Big J McNeely, who we did the episode on a couple weeks ago. Um, That's actually kind of awesome. When they yeah, start, it's when kind of start, coming like, full get, circle. Yeah. yeah, Big J actually arranged for him to record his first single, uh, Leon Haywood's first single, Without a Love, um, on Big J's record label at the time, which was Swingin' Records. That's, so That's really cool. Kind of cool, right? That is kind of cool. They're all sort of like... They're kind of connected. That wasn't intentional either. So that's kind of cool that it's... Well, know, it's that it's, scene in L.A. at the time, you yeah. know. So kind of neat. Because Big J at this point has already already has an established career when he helps Haywood. So it's then kind of cool that then Haywood is responsible. Well, not not solely responsible, but involved in now Ingram's career and rise to, you know, and, yeah. and start of his career. I like how unintentionally I ended up creating a timeline <laughs> within <laughs> within a couple different within a couple different topics. <laughs> <laughs> created a separate timeline. It's kind of fun. Uh, so that's that's the skinny on Leon Haywood in a nutshell anyways. I mean, there's much more to discuss on him. But uh, for now, we're talking about James Ingram. So we're going to continue that way. So he's working for Leon Haywood. And now a couple years after that, we're in the late 70s now, so James has been working as Leon Haywood's musical director. He's doing um, 
he's a studio session musician and vocalist. And so after several years of doing this, now a, a man named Lamont Dozier, who is a legendary ex-Motown songwriter, offers him an opportunity to contribute vocals for some of his upcoming releases. And this leads to James Ingram's Love's Calling being released and it gains moderate attention and airplay. So then from there, he receives his first publishing deal with 20th Century Fox, which is not a small name in this industry by any measure. What's 20th Century Fox? Oh, hush your mouth. <laughs> so with 20th Century Fox, he's got his publishing deal and he's recording like these $50 demos, like writing songs. Because if, if, like a publishing deal is basically you are a at that point a professional songwriter like the idea is to write songs sell them to artists to then make yourself and the company that is supporting you money so it's during this time then ingram records one of them 50 dollar demos that i was mentioning of the song just once and this is kind of going to lead me into a circuitous like that word oh yeah (laughs) Do you want the dime for it now or later? Later. But I want that dime. <laughs> so it brings us kind of on this circuitous path because this is when James Ingram meets Quincy Jones, who is huge. Um, so Quincy Jones hears this demo for Ingram's Just Once, and he really likes it. He wants he wants Ingram to come and record it on for his record, The Dude. That released it in 1981. Huge record. But funny story. When Quincy first calls James, Debbie, his wife, picks up the phone, tells him it's Quincy Jones. Ingram hangs up the phone thinking it's a hoax. (laughs) (laughs) He thinks it's a joke. So he hangs up the phone. And in an interview later when he's recalling this moment, he said, he's like, I was never no singer. Like... (laughs) Basically thinking like, yeah, right, Quincy Jones is calling me to come sing on his album. Yeah, right. Okay. Because it's actually kind of a side note. Ingram never really considered himself much of a singer before he like started getting success from it. Like he always considered himself a songwriter, a keyboardist, and like he kind of sang sometimes. So background vocals are fine, but he never considered himself like a standalone artist, like a front man. So yeah, so he hangs up on Quincy Jones And thankfully, Jones called back and convinced Ingram it was real and offered him to perform the song just once on The Dude. And that became Ingram's first massive hit. It earned him a Grammy nomination for Best Pop Vocal Performance. Not only did he record just once, but he also recorded another song on that album called 100 Ways, which earned him the nomination for Best New Artist at the Grammys but won him Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. So that's his first Grammy is Quincy Jones. So Glad he took that phone call. I'm really glad he finally took that phone call and that he believed him eventually. So Ingram then signs to Quincy Jones's label, Quest Records, and records his first studio album, It's Your Night, in 1983. So he becomes... Quincy Jones's go-to singer-songwriter collaborator guy, essential collaborator do- during that 10 years when Quincy Jones's career was just enormous. So he does a lot of work. 
Quincy produces Ingram's first two albums. And then I think he produced his last one as well. You know, this is the period when Quincy is becoming the music industry's most successful black producer. So this relationship is is really beneficial to both of them. They've remained friends for a very long time. In a 1991 interview, Ingram looks back on his success, noting, when people ask me, I say I studied at the University of Ray Charles and went on to learn with the master Quincy. Like, Mm -hmm. they're... Quincy is a big part of his life. I mean, imagine if he hadn't picked up that freaking phone, <laughs> like, or hadn't well, he taken did pick up the phone. He picked he up the phone back up. <laughs> but what if he didn't like take him seriously the next time around? Like, mm-hmm. it becomes a very essential relationship for both of them. You know, it. So the new album, "It's Your Night," his first solo album, is being created, for lack of a better word, produced. 1983, Ingram is nominated now for three more Grammys for How Do You Keep the Music Playing, which is a duet with Patty Austin, Party Animal, which is the single release from the upcoming It's Your Night album, and one you may know very well, he gets a Best R&B Song nomination for PYT, Pretty Young Thing. Pretty Young Thing. (laughs) Which was actually... Uh, Ingram and Jones collaboration with Michael Jackson. Now I say with Michael Jackson because Michael Jackson had written PYT pretty young thing, but his version was vastly different from the Ingram Jones rewrite. So they took the lyrics and kind of changed, changed the, the melody, the groove, all that. They changed the song around. Really be interested in listening to that cover or her, to that version to the original demo yeah because yeah it's because PYT is like really synth heavy and so that was all Quincy and Ingram interesting PYT did not win for the category for best R&B song Uh, however Jackson did still win in the same category with Billie Jean so you know another monster hit that was 1983 Grammys were huge for Michael Jackson, by the way, because that was the year the Thriller came out. So he took home not only the best R&B song category over PYT, but he also took home several other awards for Billie Jean, Beat It, and Thriller. I mean, it's not surprising. Thriller is one of the most commercially successful pop albums ever. So I had mentioned he was also nominated for How Do You Keep the Music Playing, that duet with Patty Austin. That was actually his second collaboration with Patty Austin that year. It was featured in the movie Best Friends, which also earned an Academy Award nomination that year, but was not written by Austin or Ingram. And I'm sorry, I can't remember. I wrote it down somewhere and I didn't type it up and I don't remember who it was now. I'm very, very sorry out there in the universe. But they performed vocally on it. Their first collaboration, his first collaboration with Patty Austin... And I'm including this not because it's a probably a huge moment in his career, but just because it's kind of a funny story. For his first collaboration was also in 1983 on Baby Come to Me, which when it was originally released was a total mess. It just did, it bombed. It didn't go anywhere. But it's actually really funny because it's it's a huge hit now. Like you know what that song was, but it completely bombed at first. But really, yeah, it eventually reached number one on the Hot 100 chart in 1983 after being featured on General Hospital. Oh, 
So, fun side story. And that's how that song came out of obscurity and into the light was all thanks to General Hospital. Which, by the way, um, happy belated birthday if you're listening to this, Jensen. Yeah. Happy um, belated birthday. And congratulations on being Bacchus at the 2019 Mardi Gras Festival. So I just want to make a side note right right quick as I am heading into a lot of like the Grammy nomination stuff. So Grammy nominations come out late in the year prior to the actual show air. And that's the number that uh, when you look at the Grammy site, that's the year that they claim the those particular awards for. So for instance, um, like the 26 Grammy nominations came out in 1983 but the show aired in 1984 but it's still the year that the grammy site claims is 83 so i know it's a weird thing i just want to put it out there so i just wanted to put that out there because this is i don't want anybody to get upset thinking i'm in the wrong year or whatever or be like well i don't understand that album came out this in this year but then it doesn't get Grammy nominated till this year like like how could it be nominated before it even comes out like just bear with me folks if you're not familiar with how it works that's how it works now you know because I didn't know I was getting very confused during my during my research I'm not gonna lie (laughs) it took me much longer to sort out why my years weren't matching up (laughs) than it really needed to so there you go live and learn Okay, so in 1984, James's first studio album, It's Your Night, is released and earns two more Grammy nominations, including for the full album, is up for uh, Best Male R&B Performance, and the single, Yamo Be There. Yamo Be There. You know, we can't include that. <laughs> you know what? You just don't care this time? I don't care this time. It's going in. All right. I like it. I like that sass. All right. So Yamo be there. Uh, his duet with Michael McDonald was nominated for Best R&B Song and won for Best R&B Performance by a Duo or Group. Okay. Story about this. All right. Give me. All my podcast people, you might know that there's a podcast out there called the Time Suck Podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's uh, hosted by a guy named Dan Cummings. I have... No affiliation with him. I sent him, like, a message once via Facebook, and that's literally the amount of contact that we've had before. So I will say this. I'm a huge fan of his. That's a great podcast because he does all these different kinds of topics. It's not just one topic. He's done Cleopatra. He's done Andre Ticcicillo. He's done the Chernobyl meltdown. He'll do a subject, and it might not be – what is the word? There's no through line. So it's basically just – random. random and a topic and even if it's something that i really don't care about i find myself listening to it and loving it so it's a great podcast but dan is a comedian and he'll throw these characters in (laughs) to the podcast and some of them i love like his chicken joe which is like this like jive talking pimp character and it's great (laughs) (laughs) but he keeps bringing up James Ingram and Michael McDonald and he'll sing it randomly and he'll just at the end he'll scream you just got Michael McDonald oh my all right returning back to the land of Ingram 
Oh, we were in the land of Ingram. We were in the land of Ingram. You're we're right. We're just traveling back to Ingram Island. Yeah. You know, now he's having some great successes, but after his first album is released, unfortunately, his second album does not go very well. You know, and this is, this kind of comes around to a struggle that he has throughout his career with branding, you know, seeking this crossover potential. The label, the labels kind of want as much pop crossover potential as possible. Um, This is just a big thing in the music industry in general, like, because the more listeners you can reach, the better sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're seeking this pop crossover potential, and they're continually marketing him to pop radio rather than delivering him to R&B audiences. As a result, then, only a handful of his singles actually end up on the R&B charts, and he has trouble building that wider audience. Um In a 1982 interview, so this is happening early in his career. This is before he's even released his first album. This is already happening. Um, Ingram says, It's frustrating at times when I release a record and they tell me it's not black enough for some radio stations. It's like telling the black audience they're not important, like I'm not interested in them. And so he gets really frustrated by this. But, you know, where his label markets him to an extent is out of his control. Like they're going to push him where they want to try to push him. And he, he feels this frustration that he knows that his music should be more available to that R and B audience. Um, but they just keep trying to push him on the pop side as a result. Then his sophomore album never felt so good struggles to kind of find his place in the market. He doesn't have any big hits off of it. Really? He doesn't, it doesn't does just doesn't do very well. <clears throat> uh, you look like you wanted to say something about this. No, I, I mean, you know how I feel about yeah music having no. It shouldn't have. It shouldn't have a race. It shouldn't have a race. It shouldn't it should have, have a gender. It shouldn't no. have a a sexual orientation. It's because it's often the thing that brings people together yeah. and breaks those boundaries. Yeah. And barriers. And and that it should and, be that. And that upsets me when one radio station's like, oh, you're not black enough. Well, from the quote, it doesn't I can't tell if it's the stations or the label because it's just saying it just says they tell me that he's, they tell me it's not black enough for some radio stations. So it's not clear if it's the radio station saying it's not black enough or if it's the labels saying that that's not the demographic maybe that they're going for or that right. that's not what they think. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I mean, we talked about history. We've talked about labels this before. often make really dumb mistakes when it comes to music. I'm sorry. And we've, we've, we've covered this before and it just makes me angry when someone mm-hmm. has talent and because of something like this, they're held back. Even yeah. if, even if for a brief time, it Talent just, should not be determined by how you look. It shouldn't be determined by your gender. It shouldn't right. be determined by your sexuality. It shouldn't be determined by any of that. Talent is talent, period. Yeah. Let it live in the world and thrive. And enjoy it. And enjoy it. And enjoy it. So, all, all right. I have to say about that. Rant over. Rant number two over. <laughs> it just makes me <clears throat> angry talking about it. Mm, me too. But, you know, thankfully, though... Ingram is an intrinsic 
collaborator. I mean, he started his career as a behind-the-scenes songwriter and keyboardist, so he remains, or rather retains, that collaborative spirit. Even though he has seen some moderate success on his own, he also had a lot of work with other artists like Donna Summer, the Pointer Sisters, Anita Baker, Nancy Wilson, and so many more, which I'm about to get into because now in the mid to late 80s, I mean, he starts doing much more collaboration projects. So, so 1984, for example, he teams up with Kenny Rogers and Kim Carnes for the Top 40 Ballad, What About Me? And then in 85 which is a huge one. Okay, so in 1985, he participates, which rumor has it, Quincy Jones handpicks him for this, but he participates in We Are the World, which is a huge, if you're not familiar, this is basically a huge collaboration group that called themselves the United Support of Artists for Africa, so USA for Africa for short. Um, that song... It's huge. It was, was it was a huge, huge part of the eighties, and it, it it had it's huge now still. I think Kenny Loggins was in it. Michael Jackson was in oh, it. Oh yeah, I've got I the mean, whole list here. Yeah. Let's see. Okay, it was. Here we go. And in order of appearance. Oh wow! Nicely done. Oh yeah, okay. I did my research. All right. In order of appearance: Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Kenny Rogers, James Ingram. Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, Willie Nelson, Al Jarreau, Bruce Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, Daryl Hall, Huey Lewis, Cyndi Lauper, and Kim Carnes, Bob Dylan, and Ray Charles. So it's a massive hit, uh, earning over $100 million towards famine relief in Africa. So then in 1987, he teams with Linda Ronstadt on Somewhere Out There. Which is the theme from an American tale. And the reason I have to pause was because it was so cool. Last night as I was, I finished my research and my notes were all typed and sent to LD. And as I'm winding down for the night, I'm flipping through the channels on TV and Fievel Goes West, the sequel to an American tale, happened to be coming on the TV at the same time. And I was super excited because I'm like, oh my God. It's a Somewhere Out There theme song. I just did this on James Ingram, and I just thought it was so cute. Uh, I had to share that, it, and I got super excited. That song, I'm not kidding. I am, I'm 39, grown woman, and I will hear that song, and I'll still do the little girl voice and, yeah. and cry. I mean, it's a big song if you were a kid in that time frame. and I mean, it was a big song, period. I mean, the song reached top 10 in both the on both the U.S. and U.K. charts and earned not only a Grammy nomination for the for Song of the Year, but also nominations for the Academy Awards and Golden Globes. Oh, wow. So it was a huge song. It was a huge crossover song from going from movie to radio. And it just kind of starts a little bit of a trend now for the coming years in ingram's career but before that happens in 1990 ingram teams up again with quincy jones on what has been said to be his highest profile collaboration i'm assuming they're not 
including We Are the World in that. But well, because technically I don't I don't think they actually can because the proceeds went to someone else. Yeah, but it's not talking about the like commercial success, just high profile. And that had so many monster people on it. Yeah. I mean, you can't for that for something like that of that magnitude. You really can't focus on. And it was one kind of person. more, yeah, and it was more of a special thing. Yeah. So, I mean, aside from "We Are the World," this is his highest profile collaboration, being "The Secret Garden." So he's on it with Quincy Jones, but it also features vocals from Barry White, Elda Barge, and Albie Sure. This earns another Grammy nomination for Best R and B Performance by a Duo or Group. And then in that same year, 1990, he's also nominated for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance for I Don't Have the Heart, which is a love ballad from his al- his third album, It's Real. The song reached number one on Billboard Top 100. So Oddly was not, again, written by Ingram, but was instead written by Alan Rich and Judd Friedman. So this is kind of where I go back to reminding everybody. Ingram is at this point a long married family man and he's kind of he leans towards material that presents him as a chivalrous, mild-mannered man that honoring his lover. And and if you've been looking at the songs that we've listed so far, I mean most of that is exactly that. I mean it's all about you know, there are all these emotional songs and they're like stand up men. And the reason I bring this up again is because I found a really great quote from him about this song. When he had heard the demo, it was from a female singer, but he recalled, I thought it would be really nice to hear it from a male's point of view for a man to stand up and be truthful with the woman instead of playing games. Normally, I am one of those people that's just like, no, there's not enough female representation in music. But you know what? From that point of view, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there was a purpose. Yeah. I mean, there was a purpose for him to cover this demo. But honestly, too, it maybe wasn't meant for one gender or another. I mean, as a songwriter, you kind of... Some songs are clearly for women some songs are clearly for men but also when you're trying to sell a song it helps to be more gender neutral i like that he had a reason for it but i also you know not necessarily just because a female was on the demo doesn't mean that necessarily it was written specifically for a female and i am going to point you back to your own episode with patsy klein how initially Willie Nelson had cut the demo for her Mm -hmm. and she was having a rough time interpreting it the way that he had. So she took it and put her own stamp on it. Which became one of her biggest songs. Yeah. So, So, I mean, yeah. So, yeah. So sometimes you take a a song, interpret it your own way, and it becomes... It lands. It It lands. lands. It works, you know? So in this case, and I just really liked that point of view on it of trying to, to be a role model and kind of show guys like hey just you can just be this guy be that guy be that stand-up guy be that chivalrous guy be somebody that your lady wants to show off and be with that reasoning for why he wanted to do the song was actually i just thought was really cool so i wanted to include the quote because then after those we go back to more of his soundtrack success later in the 90s he continues to be really popular for soundtracks and the work that he's doing these collaborations that he's working on end up in a lot of a lot of them throughout the rest of the 90s I and mean, it's also kind of when you're seeing more crossover 
as I mentioned with Somewhere Out There, you start seeing this crossover now between movie themes and actual radio play and pop charting, which is not something that you really see today. So in the 90s, he released one more time for the movie Serafina and Where Did My Heart Go for City Slickers. Then in 1991 and 93, I'm saying this together because it's the same song. It was a duet with Melissa Manchester for the animated Christmas TV movie Precious Moments Timmy's Gift and the subsequent Precious Moments Timmy's Special Delivery, the song called The Brightest Star. Then in 1994, his duet with Dolly Parton, The Day I Fall in Love, became the theme song for Beethoven's Second, earning him nominations for the Academy Awards, Golden Globes, and Grammys for its placement in the movie. Um, Dolly Parton and James Ingram performed this song live at that year's Oscar ceremony. In 1995, his duet with Patti Smith, Look What Love Has Done, earned another Oscar nomination for the movie Junior. Uh, and then 97, Ingram teamed up with Carney Wilson on Our Time Has Come for the animated movie Cats Don't Dance. You know, this continues to be that pattern of collaborations. 90 saw him through a lot of soundtracks, and then his later career in the 2000s sees more still more collaborations and guest appearances. Um, he did some European touring occasionally. In 2004, he participated in the reality show Celebrity Duets. And in 06, he teamed up with neo-soul singer Angie Stone on a song called My People. Then in 2011, he joined Cliff Richard's Soulicious UK tour. <laughs> I like that name. The performance... He sang two songs from the album with Cliff Richards, or Cliff Richards, sorry, and had a solo performance of his hit, his first hit song, Just Once. Then in 2012, which this is funny, I'm going to have to go back to this because I actually liked the show when it was on the air. It was, it was good for a light watch. He was, he guest appeared as himself on an episode of Suburgatory. The episode was titled Motherload, if you want to look for it. And it's really really cute where he is actually singing 100 ways his other huge hit then he was a guest vocalist at debbie allen's show celebrating the arrival of the space shuttle endeavor in la singing a cover of r kelly's i believe i can fly speaking of debbie allen debbie allen was a close friend of ingram's right up until the end they collaborated a lot uh, in his later career including on his final album stand in the light in 2008 and Debbie Allen is actually from my very, very small, small southern hometown in South Carolina. And so she will actually come to my hometown and she'll, we just, we just discussed this with my mom on the phone. And my, and Debbie will come to. Literally just got off the phone with her. Yeah. So she, Debbie will come to my little small hometown and teach dance lessons for free for the the like inner city kids who can't cool yeah and the other thing is debbie will do fundraisers and the oldest black college in the south actually is in my hometown and so she did fundraisers to help restore it so debbie ellen is good people in my book yeah she sounds like it which again makes sense i mean from everything that i could find on james ingram he was also very humble very kind philanthropist you know after that, they did. They also worked on a number of musical theater projects, 
together, including Brothers of the Night, The Legend, and Alex in Wonderland. So it was actually Debbie Allen who broke the news of his passing publicly on Twitter. James Ingram died on January 29th, 2019 from brain cancer. Mm. He was 66 years old. Um, additional couple fun facts I found, and I don't know how true they are because there was a lot of um, inaccuracies on this particular article. <laughs> I mean, they got most of it right, but there was some inaccuracies. His favorite color was green. And his favorite that food That is was... a lie. I know for a fact that it was yellow. <laughs> and his favorite food was salmon. I mean, his his wife would probably know these things were true. But I don't know. I don't know who else. If you know, let us know. Um, <laughs> throughout Ingram's career, he had a total of 14 Grammy nominations and two Grammy wins. Wow. He was performing in... Creating all the way up to the end. And it just sounds like he was a good guy. It does. It's one of those things. It's like, oh, man, I wish I kind of, I kind of wish I would have known the guy. He probably would have been real nice. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like, especially since you showed me the clip of um, Suburgatory, it seemed like he's at least self-aware and and has a sense of humor. And he didn't have any trauma. He didn't have scandal. He just had talent. And that was. Just a a guy. He knew Mm -hmm. who he was. In another interview that I saw, he he had been quoted as saying that music was not who he was. It was what he did. And I think that says something because, you know, they go on to say that he definitely knew who he was. I mean, he had strong roots. He had a strong foundation. He was a family man. He was, you know, just a really down-to-earth guy. I mean, most of his career... He was a collaborator with other artists. You know, he didn't, it doesn't look like he necessarily sought out the spotlight despite his talent. And especially because early on, he's, you know, he's constantly saying that he doesn't actually consider himself a singer. He doesn't consider himself, he doesn't consider that one of his talents for many, many years. Whether he did at the end, I'm not sure. But at least at the beginning, he did not consider himself to be a singer. So I just think that that shows incredible humility on his part. And, you know, he just seems like a really just I I feel like he was successful at portraying that mild mannered chivalrous guy from everything that I learned researching him, that that's actually probably pretty accurate. Hmm. Well, that was an excellent story. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I think other than our business, that's probably about the end of the episode. Yeah. So a couple of notes at the beginning uh, of our our goodbyes. I actually created a Spotify playlist for every artist that we've done so far. So you can actually find it. It unfortunately had to be my personal Spotify because I pay for Spotify Premium. And I can't figure out how to change my name. So... For right now, you can find it on my Spotify, and you can find me at, because I have the most difficult name to spell in the entire world, I'll apologize, but it's Lindley Ehrlich, and that's <laughs> L-Y-N-L-Y-E-H-R-L-I-C-H, and you can follow us on Spotify there. We have playlists for Roy Orbison, Patsy Cline, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, we have Big J McNeely, we have Stevie Ray Vaughan, and you can actually catch... A spoiler alert for next week's 
episode. But we would like to point out that if you email us, if you send us a message on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, it is us answering you. It is either it is either LD or myself answering you because that's how we are. Yep. Uh, please, guys, we would love it if you would head over to iTunes or whatever your podcatcher is that you hear this. Please rate and review us. Leave a review. Like, type it out. If you do leave us a written review, we are going to have a giveaway for one of our research books. The two that we're giving away right now are going to be either you can either win A Sick, uh, Sick Life by T-Boz or Only the Lonely, the book about uh, Roy Orbison. So we're giving one of those two books away. You'll get to choose. So leave us a review. If uh, you have the best review of the month, we're, we'll keep it up for the entire month of March. If you leave us a written review, we'll pick our favorite one, and we will send you one of our books. If you feel like supporting the show, you can reach us at Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can reach us at Twitter at rockandrolllt. You can check us out on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT as well. And then our website is stupid long, and I refuse to say it anymore until I get it fixed and we get our own. <laughs> so please go to our Patreon. I mean, our first tier is a dollar a month. We are six dollars away from our goal of being able of to being purchase. able to purchase our website so that we don't <laughs> have to keep saying ridiculous. Domain name. I'm not going to say it anymore. At this point, I'm just done saying it. You can find it on our Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> like our, I'll go add it to I'll yeah. add them to our Facebook and our Twitter and our, well, our Facebook and our Instagram. I don't know how to do it on our Twitter. Sorry. And I'll, I'll our, I'll add it. You can I'll email us it. at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. So, like I said, guys, please feel free to hit us up on any of our social media sites if you want to talk to us. And that is about it. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode. Next week is going to be something very special. It's going to be our listener episode. She was our very first Patreon. She chose an excellent, 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 excellent uh, subject. subject. And so we're very excited about that. And again... Have a great week. Keep rocking in the free world. Bye, LD. Bye, TJ. Bye. Bye. <laughs> it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.